I am, I am uh, so grateful our team was willing to play that song today. I called them on Monday, and I was like, hey, do you think you could do No Hurry by Zach Brown Band? Uh, I cannot think of a better song to kick off some of what I want to talk about today as I reflect with you back on my eight-week sabbatical. Um, that song and many like it were constants on my playlist. Uh, in fact, I talked with Jody, our associate pastor this week, who started her sabbatical when I got back, and uh, I told her that we were doing No Hurry today, and she said, that's my sabbatical theme song. And I said, Jody, that is every pastor's sabbatical theme song. Every pastor taking time away is playing No Hurry. Now look, there are some lyrics to that song that don't quite reflect my heart. Um, I am not looking to raise more Cain in this world before I hear angels sing, before I die. Uh, I don't think you should wait to get right with God until you're just at the end of your life. Uh, in fact, there's one thing I think you should be in a hurry to do. Uh, it's get you and God figured out. That's not something to wait on. But the rest of that song is perfect for what we want to talk about today because that is what a sabbatical is a pastor, for a pastor. It is a time to slow down. And the reason for that is that God does something in our slowdowns. And I will just tell you, today's not gonna be a vacation slideshow or an oral report on what I learned this year at summer camp or show and tell. Uh, the reason that we are doing this today, me talking about my sabbatical, is because I think that God has something for you in this idea of slowing down. Um, maybe you're somebody who desperately wants to slow down, but you don't know how. Life seems way too chaotic. Your job is not gonna give you enough time off, certainly not eight weeks. Or, or maybe you have tried slowing down before and it wasn't all that fruitful. You've taken vacations, you know, you've gone to a beach somewhere or, or camping up in the mountains and, and you cannot stop thinking about work while you're there and you cannot slow down. Or, or, or maybe you think a slowdown requires too much of you, like travel and getting out of town and things that that you can't afford or are once a year, maybe every few years type moments, and I have great news for you, it does not have to be that. Everybody's slowdown looks different. Our associate pastor is taking a sabbatical right now in her own backyard and local coffee shops and never leaving town, staying home with her family. I don't know what the challenges have been with you having a slowdown. All I know is there is a really good chance you need one. And it doesn't have to be eight weeks. Um, don't tell the elders of our church, my bosses, but some of the most important things God taught me in my slowdown, he told me in the first three days. I could have come back on day four, everything would have been the same. But <laughs> here is my hope, that by the end of our time here this morning, you will be planning some sort of slowdown for you. And what I want to do is I walk you through some of what I got out of my sabbatical is for you to be thinking, is there something in me that needs a slowdown right now? And, and what might God have for me if I were to find time for one? And what I want to do today is more than just tell you what I got out of it. But I want to show you in scripture how it parallels what Jesus got out of it when he would slow down or, or what Jesus did when he slowed down or even why Jesus slowed down. I learned some fascinating things about passages I've read before I never noticed till I slowed down myself. And, and I'm going to show you some of those in a minute. But I'll just say as I start, I think in my slowdown, God showed me some things about me, and he showed me some things about crosswinds. 
And as I walk you through this, we're going to look at some of those crosswinds things too. Uh, briefly today, in the future, much more expansively, that'll be near the end. So, so let's start talking about you and me and Jesus, who is the master of the slowdown. Will you say that with me? Jesus, the master of the slowdown, the goat, if you will, the greatest of all time at slowing down. There are all these different times in the Bible that we see Jesus going away, being alone, slowing down. I wanna show you a few of these, and I think what you'll see, every single one of them is different. What I mean by that is the reason that he does it each time is different. Something going on in his life causes him to realize, man, I need to slow down. And because the causes are different in all these instances, what we find is that what happens in him is different each one of these times. Let me show you the first one, and maybe this will be a reason that you find that you need a slowdown, all right? Mark 6, verse 30. We'll put it up. The apostles gathered around Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And then, because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat. All right, let's just stop right there. Mark paints the picture of a moment in Jesus' ministry where things are so busy, he and his disciples cannot even get away to eat. Um, just so you know, in case you're confused, there is no in and out drive through in the ancient Mideast. There is no power bar that they could take with them in their bags. They've not eaten, and it occurs to Jesus, it's getting to be too much for him and his family. These guys are his family. And so he says to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. All right, fair question. How solitary can a solitary place be when you bring 12 crazy disciples with you? <laughs> when you think of solitude, do you think of 12 young men in their late teens and early 20s? Anybody? But this is actually good. This is good. We can learn from this. It doesn't say right here that Jesus goes away by himself to pray. Now, he does that in other instances, we'll see. Doesn't say he goes away to, to meditate, do yoga, have a cleanse. Jesus just gets, just gets away to rest with his friends. And can I tell you, based on what we know about these 12 people, rest also means to play with his friends. And I wonder if some of you need some rest and you might need some play right now. Um, it's funny, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that I, I think I needed to do on this sabbatical was just rest a little bit. Not a whole lot. I think for me, uh, my, my rhythms around here are pretty healthy. I, I, I take days off. I rarely check my email when I'm home at night. But still, I knew I needed some rest with my family. And so I thought, in the middle of this eight weeks, we're going to do two weeks where all four of us are together, and we won't do it here in Livermore. We will do it in Mazatlan, Mexico. And through the generosity of my parents who never used their timeshare points, we secured a couple of different places to stay, and I excitedly announced to the kids, you guys, we are going to Mazatlan for two weeks. And I am not joking with you. They said, two weeks? What are we going to do in Mexico for two weeks? At the beach, with the sun shining, and delicious food, and wonderful cultural experiences everywhere you look. How boring, two weeks. And I said, we're gonna do nothing, and that's the point. And I, I wonder if some of you might have an itch to go do nothing right now. Jesus had a moment where he did nothing, and he brought 12 friends with him to go do nothing. Now just, I was thinking about this, I can't think of the last time I got together with some friends to go do nothing. I think it was high school, maybe it was college. We would call each other on the phone. This, you might be able to relate to this, and we would say, what are you doing right now? Nothing. What are you doing? Nothing. You want to hang out and do nothing together? 
Yes, we do. But, but I, here's what I've noticed as you grow up. Now we have excuses. We have to have excuses to get together. Do you wanna go to lunch? Do you, do you wanna get some coffee? Would you like to see a movie? Let's go play around at golf. And all of that's fine. Frankly, you know what all that is? It's nothing. But here's what that reveals. And, and, and we think we have to be productive and use our time wisely. And Jesus says to us in this moment we just read where, where he goes to rest with his disciples, part of why I want you to rest is because in your doing nothing, you will learn productivity is not what makes me want to be with you. And that right there is part of what I learned on my sabbatical. Let me say it again. God says to me, he says to you, your productivity is not what makes me want to be with you. And here's how I will prove it. I want you to go do nothing. Jesus says, come with me and rest and play. You guys, I am thrilled to be a pastor. There's nothing else that I want to do with my life. Believe me, I spent some time on this eight weeks trying to figure out what other thing I might want to do. Um, if I were not a pastor, what thing would I do that would make me happy? I made a list. They were all terrible. None of them would make me happy. But I did get to experience what it was to not be a pastor for eight weeks, not be productive. And, and, and that my identity after 25 years of this is more than pastor. And part of why we rest is so we learn Jesus wants to be with us even when we're not doing the thing that he created us to do. And we rest because one of the things we do when we're resting is inevitably we play. Um, one of the things that we did in Mazatlan is we went to a water park. Now, this is what I love about Mexico. How much would you pay here for a day at a water park? Would you turn and tell somebody next to you what you think it costs to go to Raging Waters down in San Jose? Okay, $40 maybe you said for a day, $50 for a day. The full price for a day at Raging Waters is 55 bucks. But Mexico... Mazatlan, if you go to Mazagua, you will pay a whopping $12. In Mazagua, is like any United States water park, it is just as good, except I learned that they have very different safety standards at Mexican water parks <laughs> than here in the States. Uh, here, if you go on a water slide, like a legit, fast, fun, scary water slide, you land in a pool that is at least three or four feet deep. There's like a code. The pool's got to be deep enough that you don't like hurt yourself when you end the water slide. Mazagua, no joke, maybe there is this much water. And you, 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 you scrape the bottom of the pool as you get off that water slide. Um, there is one toboggan-type slide at Mazagua that uses a conveyor belt. A conveyor belt. You get yourself onto a two-person raft toboggan thing, and you sit on a conveyor belt that takes you to the top of the slide um, like you are groceries at the supermarket. It just takes you up, making your way to the cashier. Um, meanwhile, there is rusty chicken wire over your head forming a cage around you, I presume, to keep you from jumping off when you realize how dangerous this ride is. So Andrea and I got in the toboggan together and halfway up the conveyor belt, we looked at each other and said, what in the world are we doing? And uh, we had no choice. We went down and there is a jump in the middle of the slide where you catch air, which increases your speed with only about 20 feet left to the landing pool where, where the wall of the pool is about eight feet from where the slide spits you out. And if you don't intentionally capsize the toboggan, you will ram into that wall. So 
we both instinctively flipped ourselves upside down, the water over and off the raft, and as we did, I felt something go very wrong in my arm and in my neck, and it has been hurting since then. It's been like seven weeks now. I had an MRI this week to figure out what the heck I did, and uh, what I learned is, if you are not hurting yourself, you are not doing rest right, okay? Maybe you need to slow down so that you can rest and so that you can play. All right, let's get to the second picture of Jesus slowing down. This one I never quite noticed this way before. This one you're going to find in Matthew 14. Um, I'm not going to read you the whole story. It's a long story, but what you need to know, John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, and he's the one who baptized him, and he's the one who prepared the way for Jesus, right? John the Baptist gets in trouble with Herod, and he gets beheaded story is crazy. It involves a birthday party and his head on a platter. And, but after this happens, it says in verse 12, John's disciples came and they took his body and they buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. All right, take a look at the next line, verse 13. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. After his friend and his cousin loses his life, Jesus slows down. And maybe right here, this is the second reason that you need to slow down because maybe you have some grief to work through. Grief. Um, I'll tell you, on, on this sabbatical, I had some grief to work through. I had grief from growing up. I had grief from four years ago. I, I have all sorts of different grief over different things, and for a long time, I've been holding on to that grief. Um, can I let you in on some of my grief? I, I think the toughest part of being a leader, and, and I know a lot of you have experienced this being leaders yourself, I think the toughest part is also being friends with the people that you lead. Either you tend toward the leader part and away from the friend part, or you err toward the friend part, and it makes it hard to have good judgment sometimes in being somebody's leader. And sometimes, as a leader or a senior pastor, you have to make hard decisions, and it can be incredibly difficult when the people affected by your decisions are your friends or your family and your church family. Well, here's where I'm going with this. In my first two years here at Crosswinds as the senior pastor, I'd already been here four or five years as a teaching pastor, but talking about the role I'm in now, I had to exit, in the first few years, I had to help exit 20 plus people that were on our church staff. Um, the truth is, our church was way overextended financially. It had been for years. In fact, our church had been taking out loans or drawing on lines of credit to be able to maintain the staff size that we had. And I knew we gotta greatly reduce our staff and our payroll to something that is more in line with like our historic income, what it's actually been, and it meant letting go of a lot of good people. All right, add to that, we had some on our staff that were really not loving their jobs at Crosswinds. Some who were very toxic and had been for years, and as much as we gave opportunities to heal and, and to help them with that, didn't seem to ever really get there. And, and believe me when I say, I am more aware that losing their jobs here is, is far more painful for any of them at the time than it was for me. They had lots more to grieve than I did, but each one of those people mattered to me in some way, some much closer than others, but they all mattered. And here, when you are the leader, you might feel grief, but you gotta move on. You gotta get to the next thing. And I'll tell you, I don't know that I realized how much grief I had been carrying and holding, even physically holding, until I took some time to slow down and just hang out in my grief for a few of those weeks. And as I hung out with God in my grief, I was able to process it and let a lot of it go. And I wonder if, if some of you could learn from Jesus what it is to go be alone and deal 
with some of the grief that you've been carrying. Maybe you have been in grief that you've been holding on to for, for a while. You don't even know you have. Maybe it's because you lost a person or you lost a dream. Maybe you've just gone through something really hard and, and you need to grieve it a little bit. A slowdown is where you and God get to do some important work. All right, let me show you the third thing going on with Jesus that causes him to slow down, all right? Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's about to be arrested. Just after the Last Supper, it tells us this right here. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you don't fall into temptation. And then, then he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them by himself. He knelt down and he prayed. Jesus slows down in this garden to go pray. And he leaves his disciples behind a bit to go pray alone. And by the way, you'll notice a lot of these slowdowns involve prayer. But the thing that is driving at this time is Jesus is in distress. He knows he is about to be arrested and crucified for the sins of the world. He is in distress, and get this, his inclination when he is in distress is not to go problem solve, not to fix everything, not to call all his friends on the phone and say, what would you do? When he is in distress, he slows down. And, and I wonder if some of you are in distress and you just need time away from it all with God. Um, my sabbatical started on a Monday, but can I tell you that the Friday before, the Saturday, the Sunday before, I felt my pulse racing. Really like three or four straight days, I was just, I'd be sitting watching TV or I'd be reading a book and my resting heart rate, I would look down at my watch, it would be in the high 90s or low 100s. And it was weird, I had never felt this before. And, and finally I said to myself, what is going on? I just need to go be alone with God, which I know is what I'm gonna do for the next eight weeks, but I feel distressed. Maybe I need to go do this now. And so um, one night, I just went for a very long walk with God, and I prayed. I said, God, why am I so worried about this sabbatical that starts in a few days? And God said, let's think about that. Why do you think you're worried? And I said, oh, maybe I'm worried that I'm gonna find out that I am a dad that gets to hide behind the fact that I have to work in pastoring. I have pastoring things to do. And, uh, and maybe I feel nervous because now I'm gonna be faced with the truth that I don't know how to be a dad. And as I was walking, I said to God, what if I'm bad at sabbatical? Like, what if I'm bad at contemplation? What if I'm bad at all the things you're supposed to do? And I said to God, I don't, I don't feel like maybe I deserve this. Um, God, is it possible that the sabbatical is a gift that I shouldn't be accepting? Like I haven't earned this? Can I tell you what God said back to me? Um, I didn't hear an audible voice of God. I don't do that. But I do have these moments where I'm journaling and I'm, I'm praying and God really impresses on me certain ideas and thoughts and conversations and sentences that are very much from him. And I said, I feel like I shouldn't be accepting this gift. And God said, that sounds ludicrous. You've served me 24 years. But Chris, if you have trouble accepting this as a gift, stop thinking of it as a gift. Consider it an invitation. I am throwing a party and you are the guest of honor and for eight weeks, all you have to do is show up at the party and talk to me, God, over in the corner every once in a while and mingle with the other guests and see what happens at the party. And, and I'll just tell you, my distress drove me to go be with God and in my distress, God met me and he spoke to me and, and look, I don't, I don't wanna minimize anxiety 
that is a very real thing many of you deal with in our world today and in moments like the one that I was feeling before I slowed down with my pulse. And, and look, there are many great counselors who will give you many great coping mechanisms for how to deal with anxiety, distract yourself, meditation, all these good things. Can I just add one to that that Jesus did? Slow down and go be with God and pray and listen. And, and can I suggest it's kind of a lost art? This, this doesn't get talked about enough in our world of cell phones and email and constant information coming at us. In fact, can I say, all of those things are part of why you are in distress and feel what you feel. Um, one day, I was at the beach in Mexico, and I, I thought of something that I knew needed to be done back here at Crosswinds. It came to my mind like six weeks into my sabbatical, five weeks in, and I, I had a temporary secret email account that I had given to Matt and Jody to get a hold of me if they needed to. So I emailed them a very short, like two-sentence email from this account asking them, hey, are you guys on top of this? Have you been thinking about this? And can I tell you that I sat on the beach with my phone and I hit refresh on my inbox probably 20 times over the next three hours to see if there was a reply yet. And all of a sudden, one email, I was hurried again. And it felt so distressing. And look, I love technology. I wouldn't give it up for much. But I feel like most of us, we are living in a constant state of refresh hitting refresh. We are waiting for someone to get back on the text we sent, the voicemail we left, the email we sent. And look, when you feel like you are waiting for that thing, whatever it is, you feel hurried. And that does something to your soul. Notifications on your phone will rob you of slowing down. But get this, even the anticipation of notifications, when's it going to come? When's it going to come? When's it gonna come? It'll rob you of slowing down. So what are you gonna do about that? Maybe you need a break from the distress and maybe God wants to bring peace for you as you slow down. Okay, two more. And th these ones I, I, I kinda wanna share with you. Both of these are things that I think ultimately led me to learn some things about crosswinds, all right? Um, in Luke 4, we read the story of Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he is tempted by Satan. It actually says in verse one, take a look at this with me, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, that's important, left the Jordan and was led by that same spirit into the wilderness. So the spirit is in Jesus and it's leading Jesus and all of this stuff, and ha stuff happens in the story with Satan tempting him. And at the end of 40 days, we read, look at this, Jesus returned to Galilee. Would you read this line with me? In the power of the spirit. And then news spread about him throughout the countryside. Now, it's become commonly understood that these 40 days were Jesus preparing for his ministry. Like that's where it kicked off. But Something happened in these 40 days besides resisting temptation. Again, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, the same Spirit that sent him to go slow down. The same Spirit he was already full of was now empowering him in a new way for a new task that was before him. And those of you here who are already Christians, I need you to know something. You might be full of the Holy Spirit, you might be being led by the Holy Spirit, but until you regularly take time to slow down, you will not be empowered by the Holy Spirit because in the slowdown, the Holy Spirit empowers you. Why? Why? 
Because God wants to prepare you for a major task, a big thing that is coming in your life. In my time gone, I, I, I have sensed the power of the Spirit working in me and preparing me and getting me ready for whatever's next for me and for crosswinds. And I think I have a pretty good idea of what that is, but I don't know that I would be empowered to do it or to do it well without having slowed down. And maybe God is wanting to empower you for something too. He's got a big task coming for you, for your family, for your job, for your whatever, but the way he's gonna get you ready is a slowdown. All right, last one. And we see this in Luke 6, verse 12. It says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the whole night praying to God. And then it says, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles. Okay, maybe you already know Jesus chose 12 of these people to be the main ones, the disciples, his team. Did you know, did you realize the first part of that paragraph he did it after spending an entire day and an entire evening slowing down. The reason that Jesus went to this mountainside to slow down was to get clarity with his decisions. And maybe you could use some clarity right now. Clarity about your family, clarity about some decisions that you need to go make, clarity about the direction your life is going, clarity about work, it rarely comes, clarity, clarity rarely happens outside of a slowdown. And if it's okay, I'd just like to take the rest of our time and share with you what's become clear to me uh, on that eight weeks about crosswinds. Um, some of what I realized about this church, this group of people on my sabbatical. You know what? There are wonderful churches all over the world. Uh, I got to go visit some. I got to watch services. Wonderful churches any of us would be honored to be a part of. God is doing great things in so many different places, but this place, you people, are incredibly unique. There is nothing quite like it that I have found. Um, when this church was started over 30 years ago, it was with this really fascinating mission statement to take irreligious people and turn them into fully devoted followers of Christ. And as I put that up on the screen, many of you, you would say, that's me. That, that's what I was. I was an irreligious person. And it's worked. You would say, I am now what I would call a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Or you might be a little bit more modest than that. You might say, I don't think I'm there yet, but I'm getting closer every day, right? I imagine that there are others of you here who would say, hey, actually, that's me right now. I'm an irreligious person. I'm just checking this God thing out. I'm trying to figure out what I do with Jesus. And, and if that is you, can I just say, I am so glad you're here. Secretly, I can't think of a better place for you to be. Because one of the things that's always made Crosswinds unique, it was designed for you, irreligious person. Um, the church that I grew up in, most churches across America were not designed for people who don't already go to church, don't know how to do church, don't have God already figured out. Most are designed, you know, you know what most of them are designed for? Their, their unofficial mission statement, to take faithful followers and turn them into better faithful followers. Somebody's idea of better faithful followers. And, and I'll just say, there's something very appealing about that because if you've been following Jesus for a while now, you want to grow and in a church that devotes 52 Sundays a year to making you a better Christian, that sounds very promising, doesn't it? Well, one of the things that I've gotten clarity on on my sabbatical is that Crosswinds has spent the better part of the last five or six years, I think, drifting a little bit into this second thing, making followers into better followers. Um, 
most of you understand the concept of mission drift, right? You've heard about that in corporations and companies. Just a little bit over time, you kind of find you're out of alignment with where you started or, or where you want to be. And what's become clear to me while I've been gone, and, and actually a few months leading up to it as well, I think we've drifted a little bit from the first thing up there to the second. Now, to be fair, the second matters to you. And it matters to me. I do want to be a better follower. If you're a follower here, you do too. We are always going to want to equip you to becoming a, a better follower. It's why we spent the first part of this morning talking to you about the practice of slowing down. That's going to make you better. But I also think we have drifted away a bit from our first calling and what makes us unique, helping people who are not yet Christians figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And when I say people, I mean your neighbors, and I mean your friends, and I mean your family, and you guys, I mean your kids. Like, let, let, me, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We have taught you how to be more loving and how to be wiser and how to be more free and how to be good. We taught you how to be good to other people. We named a whole village after it for crying out loud, Goodness Village. And all of those are great things. They're wonderful things. Those things will make you a better Christian. But do you know what I've realized? You could come to Crosswinds for five years and you could listen and you could become more good more loving, wiser, freer. You could become all those things and many more and never actually become a Christian. You could become all those things and never make a decision to ask Jesus to apply his work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and make him the leader of your life. Just anecdotally, I've, I've had many conversations with, with lots of you over the last year where we talk about your journey and what God is doing in your life. And as I hear you talking to me, I hear you talk about becoming a more loving dad and a more attentive husband and a, and a more patient coworker, even more compassionate to those in the world who've been marginalized. You are seeing yourself change and transform, and that is wonderful. Those are so good. I am thrilled with the way that God is changing you. But this church isn't here exclusively to help you become a better person or if you're a Christian, a better Christian. We are here also, one might even say, first, to introduce you to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're not ashamed of that, because I know, whether you know it or not yet, it is the most important decision you could ever make, and your friends could ever make, and your spouse could ever make, and you guys, it's the most important decision your kids will ever make, and we have not done that as well as we could be doing at least lately. I, I don't ever want you to think that the definition of a Christian is somebody who's becoming a better person. Yes, that should be happening in our lives, but the truth you have got to know, Christians are not defined by just their willingness to, to, to get better. Christians are defined by their willingness to recognize their need for forgiveness and to receive God's grace and to follow him with their lives. And so, I've been back two weeks and We've been having a number of conversations, even before I left, actually, about how we make sure that while we continue helping each other become better people around here. Can I say that again? Because I want to make sure you don't think we're going to stop trying to help you become better people, better Christians. While we continue helping each other become more loving and wise and good and free and wonderful, wonderful things, it starts with becoming a Christian, with giving your life to Jesus. And I think you're going to see that change, some of what we do around here this coming year. I got clarity on that. Um, let me give you the second thing I got clarity on. We had lots of stuff happen in the world while I was gone. 
The January 6th hearings began. There were mass shootings in Texas, Highland Park, Illinois. Roe v. Wade was overturned. And that has revealed the polarized nature of our society. In fact, let's face it, our polarization was already apparent. Now it's just pushed the poles further apart, right? And what's been real clear to me in this, and I'm sure this has been clear to you too, an incredible reputational hit that Christians have taken out of so many of these events. Now, let me stop right there. Whatever reputational hit Christians have taken, it is not as big a deal as the child who got hit with a bullet in Uvalde, right? Or the 10-year-old who was raped by a 27-year-old man and later found out she was pregnant. And can we agree that even if our reputation as Christians has been hit, there are people who have it way worse? And at the same time, if 30 years ago this church was started to help irreligious people become fully devoted followers, do you think, honest question, do you think irreligious people want to be followers today? What has really struck me, the world has a perception that if you are a Jesus follower, if you're a Christian, then you are one stereotyped thing. And excuse me for a moment if you fit some of this stereotype because you might feel like what I'm about to say is trying to persuade people away from your personal political view. It's not, I promise, I do not have a horse in this political race. But the world believes that if you are Christian, you are pro-gun and against any kind of gun control. That you are pro-life and against abortion in any and every instance. That if you are a Christian, you are against same-sex marriage. If you're a Christian, you don't care about racial injustice. If you're a Christian, you don't believe in empowering women in leadership. If you're a Christian, you agree with the guy who had a Christian flag outside the Capitol next to the noose. That all Christians look like this or vote like this or think like this. And it is just not true. It's not true. And I say that, I say that knowing some of you feel very strongly about abortion and your strong feelings are based on your understanding of the Bible, what you read. There are moments you wonder, how could somebody read this and not see what I see and still be a Christian? But it's just not true that all Christians come to the same conclusions on these things. Even after reading the Bible, even the one you think is a slam dunk to you and matters to you, Christians disagree on. All right, I'm not asking anyone to raise their hands. But I promise you, I promise you, this room is split on pretty much every one of these issues I've mentioned. And, and, and by the way, it's not because Crosswinds is weird. I mean, we are weird. But <laughs> I think almost every church in the Bay Area is probably split on these issues. I think we're weird because we're the only one I know that's willing to admit it and embrace that we're split on these issues. Admit that we disagree. Embrace that we disagree on so many of these things. And why? Why is that important? Why do we think that is so important at this church? Because as long as our world, and I'll just say especially the Bay Area, as long as people are under the impression that to be a Christian, you have to vote this way, believe this thing about abortion, gun control, immigration reform, whatever, as long as people think Christians are all one thing, and by the way, that's on either side, either pole, it will be a giant barrier to them knowing Jesus. I'm telling you, I, I know many of you are passionate about any of those things I just mentioned, and you should be, and guess what? You get to be. Whatever side you're on, you can be passionate about whatever you want, but the main thing that you are called to be passionate about by God, inviting people into a saving relationship with Jesus. You should be passionate about not putting barriers between people and Jesus. 
And here's the deal. Let's be clear. Let's get some clarity right now. This world is not interested in becoming fully devoted followers of Christ because they don't want to be passionate about many of the things that they're being told most Christians are passionate about. But the truth is, what no one ever tells them, Christians don't agree on all these political issues. We're like the rest of America. We see it different from each other. We might not have our politics in common. What we have in common is we are passionate about knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, being saved by Jesus. And here's the deal. No one's going to tell anyone that. The way the world's perception is going to change is through you and you and you and every single one of us. When I say you, I, I, I wish I could rely on Christians all around the country and every church to start getting this right, to put helping people find Jesus before their politics. Honestly, I don't know about that. I can't speak for other churches. What, what I can say, for seven years, I looked it up this week, for seven years, we have been saying, no, 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 at Crosswinds, we agree to disagree on lots of these kinds of things. And the reason we've been saying it here, one, it's true, anything else would be a lie. Two, we say it for the sake of people knowing salvation. Our world needs churches like Crosswinds right now, where, where you can say to your friends and your family who don't know Jesus, I don't care what you believe about these hot button topics, I care that you know Jesus and his salvation. And by the way, friend and family, that's not a trick where we get you to become a Christian and then we change you to think exactly like all of us. Because in my church, we don't think like all of us. We all think different. Church family, I am so consumed with Jesus' kingdom and people hearing about it. I will not let the pursuit of an American kingdom that best suits me and my politics keep somebody from having a saving experience of Jesus and his kingdom. So, how do we change the perception that an entire world has about who church-going Christian people are? I think I have an idea. By the way, what I've learned is whenever a pastor says, I have an idea, be scared. It's usually very bad news. <laughs> Hopefully it's not the case here. Right now, our society, our culture, our, our world thinks that it's fighting each other, right? That, that it's divided, it's polarized. It's as if there is a civil war going on without the violence yet, although... One could argue there have been manifestations of that. And I don't know about you, I look at it and I wonder how much longer we can take it as a country. People doing egregious things to people who they think of as on the other side, saying terrible things about people on the other side. How long can we go before it explodes? And I see that every day and I ask myself, where are the reasonable people that are gonna step into the middle and just say, stop, we can listen to each other. We can understand, we can try to understand each other, we can, we can hear each other's stories, and while we may never agree, we can at least have peace in our disagreement and respect and honor and love in our disagreement. Who is gonna do that? Who's gonna do that? Who's gonna make peace happen in this world? Who's gonna show people that peace in the middle of disagreement can actually be accomplished? Who? Who's gonna model and show the world a group of people who all disagree with each other on so many political things and still live peacefully and honorably and respectfully and lovingly with each other anyway? I think if this is gonna get modeled to this world by anyone, it is gonna have to be by the people who follow the one 
who is called the Prince of Peace, Jesus. I think it's gonna have to be by the people who he told to be peacemakers. I think this church, and especially this church, has an important role to play in this world right now to bring peace in the midst of divide, to model peace. And I have some ideas for what that might look like at Crosswinds and for our city and for this valley. What if, what if there was a tidal wave of peace with people you disagree with that rippled out of this place? And in this valley, where people who find anything they join or become a part of is full of other people who don't like somebody from another group or who want to pit people against the other group, what if when somebody meets a person from Crosswinds, where they come to this place, they find a group of people who do not hate and who do not accuse, and who do not fight, and do not demonize, and do not polarize, and even though they don't see eye to eye, they practice peace with each other. What if we don't just keep peace, we make it? I have some ideas for how we do that. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that Sunday becomes about peacemaking and politics. Um, you don't come on church to Sunday, uh, come to church on Sunday to talk about politics. I don't either. You've already heard me. I think Sunday ought to be about Jesus and salvation and each week what it means to follow him and how Jesus wants to bring life to the fullest to your life and your family and your friendships and your school. I'm not telling you Sunday's gonna start being about peacemaking, but I am saying we are gonna do some peacemaking around here so that that more people can join us on Sundays to hear about Jesus and what his death on the cross means for them, and I need your help. If, if you feel especially prompted to help me with this mission to model peace so that our community will know the ultimate peacemaker, um, I wanna talk with you because I can't do this alone. I, I need a team of people who are creatively thinking about how to do this because um, the rest of our staff have other jobs to do. <laughs> If the idea of creating a community that actively models peace to our larger community does something in you, would you come talk to me? I had some people come talk to me after the first service. I'd love to talk to you more about that. And, and, and this is gonna take some time to figure out how we model that in our community, but I am up to the challenge, and I know that you are, because this church is like no other church. Th this church cares so much over 30 years so much about lost people who do not know about Jesus, this church would push aside its own agenda to make sure they know. This church values peacemaking over argument winning. This church is as interested in seeing lost people found as they are in becoming better Christians. I am so proud to be pastor of this church. There is no place I would rather be. Thank you for the slowdown. All right, would you stand with me? Let's pray together. And as we're here and we are talking about these things, that, that uh, are we thinking about the things we just talked about? I, I, I just take you back to the beginning. What might God want to do with you in a slowdown? Even an hour, even a day, even a week. Let's pray. God, some of my friends here need rest and they need play. Would you help them do that? God, some of them need to grieve. They've been holding on to pain and, and grief that they've not been able to let go of. Would you give them space to grieve? God, some are in distress right now. Would you bring peace? 
Some are needing a slowdown because you are gonna prepare them for an important task you've got before them. May they be empowered by your Holy Spirit. And God, some need to get clear, need to get very clear. God, would you give us slowdowns and would you meet us in them and would you speak? And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.